Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Today, I will be speaking with H. Michael Uche, MD, PhD, on how Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx, New York, quickly converted a children's hospital to an adult COVID-19 hospital. Dr. Uche is Professor of Pediatrics, Interim Chief of the Division of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine, and Medical Director of the Pediatric Critical Care Unit at the Children's Hospital at Montefiore and the Pediatric Hospital for Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx, New York. Welcome, Mike. We're glad to have you here today. Oh, thank you very much, Margaret. Do you have any disclosures to report before we get started? No, no disclosures at all. Okay. Mike, um, we all are, of course, very well aware of the uh, massive load on the healthcare system that uh, COVID-19 has uh, inflicted on us. Can you um, tell us the lead up to why converting your pediatric hospital to an adult COVID-19 hospital was necessary? And how, how did the hospital decide to make this conversion? Well, I think that um, people saw that this was coming, that the, um, that the number of admissions uh, was rising. And when you look at the kinetics of the number of patients and how they increased, it's really startling. It was like one patient, then two patients and four patients. And, and it really fulfilled this whole geometric progression of, of epidemiology, which we've learned from way back in, in a scary way. Um, the adults, our adult colleagues, I think were facing this quite a bit earlier than we were, maybe a week or so before we were. And a couple of things happened. One um, is the governor uh, of New York and the department and the health commissioner mandated that every hospital double its ICU capacity. Um, the, the baseline ICU capacity of Montefiore, not including pediatrics, is about 106 ICU beds. So they had to basically double that number of beds. and. Um, as well as with the rising increase in patients, uh, they needed to, to, to double it. And they realized with this illness in particular, the, the chance of someone needing ICU care was extraordinarily high. Um, we first, be, in pediatrics, as we were into March, and we first became aware of it, um, we knew something was happening. And we talked early on about increasing the age range for the PICU. And then on March um, 25th, I got a phone call in the evening saying we got a 22-year-old out at, in, in a local hospital in a medical ICU. Can you take him? Because we're filled up uh, from the adult ICUs were filled. And, and that started the role, and that was our first one. And since that point, just from a critical care perspective, we've been averaging about 10 intubated adults, ranging from initially, we're, they're trying to keep patients between 21 and 30 with us. But quickly that expanded. And as of this morning, we actually have our oldest patients, 59, um, in the PICU. Um, simultaneously, there needed to be increased bed capacity. And the decision was made to convert one of our pediatric floors to an entire uh, adult COVID floor. So they converted a 38-bed med surge pediatric floor to um, an adult floor uh, which instantaneously filled just with ER backlog. And the doctors who were, who were tasked with covering that floor were um, our pediatric hospital medicine uh, physicians, as well as our pediatric cardiologists, 
um, with and with some assistance of, of, of adult PAs. At similar time, we expanded the age on another floor from 21 to 30. So anyone from 21 to 30 would go to that floor, which was traditionally a pediatric floor, um, trying to keep our, our hemonc floor stable and COVID free. They then took our PACU in the children's hospital and converted that into an adult ICU, uh, where it now still exists as an adult ICU. So it's been extraordinarily rapid and a real change in culture, which I'm happy to say the hospital staff has adapted to amazingly well. Did you have issues um, with things like credentialing? You know, you've got a bunch of pediatric practitioners who are now taking care of adults. And how did you deal with the, you know, I'm not credentialed to take care of adults question? Yeah, um, that that question is, of course, has come up on many occasions because we do take to 21 up in, in the children's hospital in general as well as some of the subspecialty services tend to take hold of their older patients. So this question comes up from time to time, and we have discussed it before. For this particular case, they just decided to forego those rules. Um, I think there were certain um, um, things in the state rules and and what um, the public health law said about this that allowed them to forgive it. But it was there has been very little pushback, interestingly, from the pediatricians and certainly from the hospital um, um, for the pediatricians to cover uh, these adults. For instance, on the, the adult patients on the pediatric floors, in order to help out um, you know, the, the adult consult services, all of the consults are actually um, first through the pediatric subspecialists and then discussed with the adult subspecialist afterwards. So everyone's learning a lot of adult medicine, um, but there hasn't been, to my knowledge at all, any administrative or legalistic pushback on that. Well, that's great. And how about the comfort level of the um, both the nurses, physicians, probably those are the two most, but other, potentially other healthcare uh, team members in making this change, particularly as you get to, you know, a little bit older adults? Yeah. Yeah, I think I think the circumstances change that. I've known, you know, traditionally, if you think about our units, if we tried to admit an adult patient to our PICUs on a normal normal times, the amount of pushback would be astronomical. But in this situation, there's been very little uh, pushback from um, from anyone. The nurses have sort of taken it in stride. I'm, I'm really amazed, and if, certainly there was a ton of nervousness up front about it. Uh, what am I going to do with all these problems? I don't know how to do diabetes, hypertension, and, and, and everyone comes in with lots of problems. These are, you know, your typical adult patients. Yeah. Um, yeah. but, but people seem to have taken it. Um, I, I'm really proud of the department and, and the pediatricians. And interestingly, they didn't really ask the medicine people to take care of kids, but they asked the pediatricians to take care of adults. And, <laughs> and I think they've, um, They've done a good job, and and the, and they've actually met what the real challenges extremely well. So if you think about it, well, if it's hypertension, I can, I can call someone and figure it out, or I can do that. But the real challenges, particularly with this, this illness and how dynamic and fast changing it is, you've got to talk to people about end of life care. You've got to talk about goals of care. You got to talk about um, you know making people DNR DNI, and it is a different. 
uh, it's a very different paradigm with adults than we deal with in kids because in kids we're talking to parents. So we've learned how to do that. But it's it's different when you're talking to, you know, a, a 30 year old adult, you know, with two kids and a wife and 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 realizing that if they're about to get intubated, they may not get extubated. So it's that has been, I think, a real challenge. I think the emotional toll of this is going to be tough because we in pediatrics do tend to be a little bit more um, sensitive to these things. We think I, I can't don't want to say anything about our adult <laughs> colleagues, but this is you know we, we tend to be a little bit more on the sensitive side than than some of our adult colleagues. So that has been a, a real challenge. Um, the nurses have done a great job in the PICU. These patients, once they're intubated, we prone them for for most of the day. Um, you know, the the our, our adult critical care group is an extraordinarily ARDSnet and um, guideline based group, and everyone gets proned. They you know they they believe struck strictly in ARDSnet and Proceva, and and they're People get prone for 16 to 18 hours a day. And when you're proning a 150 kilo patient, <laughs> yeah. that is an enormous amount of work. And, um, and so we have these proning teams that are going around the unit twice a day and flipping these patients over. And, um, and, and it's amazing. And I don't, no one's complaining of, I'm sure it's all going to happen. No one's complaining of back aches and pains and they realize it has to be done and they do it. And it's, it's outstanding. Well, that's great. We, you mentioned, obviously, the challenge in the size of the patients. What other challenges did you have uh, in accomplishing this switch? Well, I think one of the big challenges, um, in addition to um, different, different medicine, dealing with um, the goals of care and end-of-life care, um, has been approaching emergencies. And these patients, for instance, on our one floor with 38 adult COVID patients, a number of them are on high flu nasal cannula and non-rebreather face masks. It's, we're doing everything to maintain some degree of oxygenation in them. And they're often, and on a daily basis, there may be one to two patients intubated on that floor per day. And that is extraordinarily uncommon in, in, in our world of pediatrics. And yet, people have had to adjust to that. And and not only that, but you might have to adjust to intubating a patient on the floor and then not having an ICU bed available right away. So now we have patients that um, are intubated on a ventilator, uh, on a med surge floor staffed by pediatricians and pediatric specialists who can't go to an ICU for sometimes five, six, or seven hours before a bed's identified. Um, and that is... Um, that's that's a real paradigm shift in the way we practice in pediatrics. You know, it was very interesting. I was talking to one of the nurses on the floor, and they go, "This is totally going to change the way we practice medicine." You know, we call traditionally in pediatrics, we'd call a rapid response if someone had retractions and needed twenty five percent oxygen, and and now we're not calling a rapid response until someone's satting eighty eight on sixty liters of high flow. And so it's going to be, I'm a little bit worried what might happen come, you know, come the fall or next winter when, when the lessons learned from, from this episode are, are taking effect. But, um, but that's, that's been a challenge. Um, but people, 
if, if we can find a way to support them and, and listen to their concerns, we've managed to deal with it you know, for the most part. You know? So if, if someone gets intubated on the pediatric floor, even though it has been done by the adult rapid response people, um, we will send a team from the PICU down to manage that patient until they can either come up to our unit um, or to the adult units uh, as, they, uh, as they open up a bed. What do you do with the children who are in the hospital? It sounds like your pediatric floors might be sort of separate. The, you have this large adult unit, um, and the children presumably are on the pediatric units. But what about in the ICU? Yeah, it's kind of mixed. You know, I, I looked at the census this morning, and our, our youngest patient in the PICU is two months old, and our oldest is 59 years <laughs> So it's it's an incredible range. And you'll see adult, 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 baby, adult, adult, baby, child, teenage, you know, it's what's you just put them where you have to. Exactly. And um, and, you know, we try, if possible, to sort of cohort the covids in the unit in various places. But now you essentially have to assume that every single patient in the unit is is covid positive. Um, and just working really, really hard to keep those sort of, you know, the, the, those chronic trach vent patients that um, have been in the unit for a while, and you really, really don't want to get this, trying to keep them free of it. But there's a lot of juggling around. And um, the, the, the startling thing and is where did all the children go? And there just aren't that many children in the hospital. The, the, the true pediatric ED volume of, of, of the volume of children is way, way down. And most of the people that are even our pediatric ED is seeing now are 21 to 30 years of age, um, all coming in with, with COVID-related illness. Um, I think it's partially because they're out of school and they're not exposing each other to all the stuff kids expose each other to in school all the time. I was just going to say that. Social distancing works for RSV. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. It's it's it. I think it's very very true, and I think it works for asthma, and it works for all the viral triggers of asthma. I think the families are keeping closer eyes on them. Um, the subspecialists are working hard to try to really minimize someone who comes in. Now, some people have to come in. You have your patients on you know um, leukemia protocols that have to come in and need their spinal taps and bone marrows, and we're bringing them in very very carefully. Most imaging is somewhat elective and can be put off, but some is urgent and that has to be done. So our sedation service is still pretty busy and you still get, you know, the smattering of, of illnesses, which can't really be taken care of outside the hospital that come in. But for the most part, the number of kids has, has, has really decreased that have been in the hospital. What about uh, staff illness and availability of PPE and so forth? That's been a huge topic in the news and throughout New York, especially. Yeah, yeah, it certainly has. Um, the staff illness is is a real thing. A number of, uh, I think the nursing staff is reporting that one quarter to one third of our PICU nursing staff is currently off. Um, either quarantining or waiting for uh, Ill, uh, symptoms of COVID to go away. Uh, we've had a number of, in our division, which is um, 11 attendings, 
we've had two attendings out at the same time with COVID illness, one fellow out, and um, they're gradually coming back, thankfully, um, and there may be others going out. So it's been a real challenge to maintain staffing in the face of becoming ill, as well as trying to prepare for the eventuality that any one day someone may wake up with a fever of 102 and, and not be able to come to work. Uh, so that that is tough. Um, but so far, we've we've managed to, to keep working and um, we're trying to try to build in as much redundancy as possible. Since a number of um, uh, most of the fellow staff in the department have been deployed to other sites within the hospital and care for patients, um, we were able to actually get a PZEM fellow who we had trained and rotated with us to um, spend a couple of weeks with us to augment us while um, while one of our fellows was out. Plus, even in terms of in times of pandemic, normal things happen. People have to go home for personal reasons. There's family issues and things that may keep someone out of the hospital, and you have to accommodate for those. The PPE issue is um, it's very angst uh, provoking. Um, Mostly, I think, because of the huge unknown aspect of this disease. You know, we see various, we see hospitals in Asia and Europe where people in the ICUs are in full, you know, inclusive PPE with, with positive air pressure respirators. And, and then we see our own CDC guidelines that say, well, an N95 mask and a face shield and a, and a gown should be sufficient. Or they also say that's the minimum necessary uh, for, for, for this illness. And so there's sort of a little bit of, of distrust or, or uncertainty there. And there's like wide varieties as, as we've tried to garner PPE and make sure that we have adequate supplies. There's like different forms of masks and different forms of gowns. And that's changing on a day-to-day -day basis. And we're reusing face shields, reusing N95 masks. And, um, and I think it's less of an issue now than it was a week and a half to two weeks ago. I think there is more materials coming in and I haven't heard as many sense of dissatisfaction as there, um, there has been uh, in the past, you know, so that's a little bit better. You know, we're still not really sure um, what is the correct PPE for things like intubation or the really, really high aerosol generating procedures um, like that. And, um, you know, intubating these patients often is a very, very, there's a lot of stuff floating around when you, by the time you intubate these patients. So that is certainly anxiety provoking, but I think it's better. And I think the hospital has really worked hard um, as all they all have to try to maintain some adequate supplies, but you'll go around on a given day and there will be no gowns. And you're, you're saying, where's, I need a yellow gown and, or I need an isolation gown. And, and you're walking from bedside to bedside to find out who's got some, um, or these are the number of face masks that we have, or this is the number of, of cleaning wipes that we have. This is what we have for the next 12 hours. Let's make it work. So you end up cutting the cleaning wipes in four, four parts or two parts to four parts in order to preserve them. It's been, it's been a challenge. Things that you have to do in time of an emergency. And the issue of available ventilators has been out there. Has that been an issue for you? Um, I think we made it through. Um, 
definitely we had to go beyond what the hospital stock was and we did get the state um the state ventilators i don't know if they're strictly state reserve or they were part of the national stockpile reserve but we did get and and most patients or every other patient now is intubated is put on an ltv which is the what the uh, the, the state has provided we try to be proportional in what people need. The LTV is somewhat limited in the amount of PEEP you can give. You're sort of limited at 20, and some of these patients do need more than 20. And um, But at, at, after a few days of being very frightened about there not being adequate ventilator supplies, um, it, it appears to be better now. Yeah, it sounds like the curve is flattening. Yes, it, it looks like it is. I think that... Um, I know the number of, of daily intubations has sort of flattened to decreased. I think the ICUs are still going to continue to be busy for a while yet because patients in the hospital are going to continue to get sick. Um, but between the LTVs, we've occasionally tried to intubate onto, uh, into the, onto the V60 BiPAP machine. That doesn't work so good, but they've tried that. Um, and we've tried to maximally utilize. Interestingly, high flows have been in very short supply and trying to put patients on, on high flow nasal cannula has created some issues as well. Um, but we, as a department and as a hospital, we did review the state ventilator allocation guidelines um, and set up a triage committee and wrote our own guidelines. Uh, but fortunately, um, the governor never did declare a public health emergency, and we never we never did have to sort of make those horrible decisions about who gets a ventilator and who doesn't, or who gets taken off a ventilator so that someone else can go on. So we set up the mechanism to do it, but um, fortunately we have not had to do it, and it looks like we won't have to. That that is such a relief. I I have lived in fear of having to be the person to make that kind of decision. And so it's um, a relief that things look like they're easing back and you won't be in that position. One of the lucky things about, you know, I don't want to say lucky, but one of the, you know, New York actually had done um, a lot of work about thinking about this early on. And, and the state allocation document written by our current health commissioner is actually very robust and very, very helpful. Right. Presumably, once this uh, COVID-19 crisis uh, resolves or as the curve slowly um, decreases, you will eventually convert back to a children's hospital. Um, how do you plan to do that? That's a good question. I, um, I know in, in all disaster management, you're always trying, you're supposed to think about return to normalcy at the same time you're ramping up. I imagine what will happen is that eventually a number of the extra ICUs which have been set up in the medical center will be disbanded as as capacity in the what they call the legacy ICUs returns. They'll be able to shut down on a number of those, uh, including our PACU in the Children's Hospital and including our new, we built a brand new infusion suite for the HEMONC and the, and the GI and the rheumatology group. And that is now an adult ICU as well. So eventually those ICUs will disband. Those patients will move back to the normal ICUs. I'm sure eventually either we'll be able to discharge the patients in our unit or, or the, their dispositions will become you know, more clear. 
and then get, and we'll try to get the adults out of the floors on the children's hospital and get ambulatory and uh, elective procedures and surgeries going again. But it's going to be a big transition. You know, I'm not sure what the new normal is going to look like. I don't think it's going to look like the old one. I think people are going to get very happy and comfortable with doing email, um, telemedicine doctor visits and whether people are going to be willing to come to clinic visits um, when it could have been done by, uh, by telemedicine, that may change things a lot. Not so much in, in the world of critical care at all, but certainly in the, the ambulatory specialties. So, so we're hoping that to have some return of normalcy soon, but I think I don't see it for weeks or even a month or two yet, maybe. Can you talk about the lessons learned for our listeners? You kind of referred to that uh, earlier, but talk about the lessons learned from all of this experience. Well, I think that one of one personal lesson I learned is that very early on, people started saying, oh, as doctors, we should not round at the bedside. Uh, we should round at a distance. We should round in conference rooms and, and maintain social distancing. And very quickly, it was very easy to separate ourselves from the patient and the bedside nurses. And that created a little bit of uneasiness and unhappiness because we're really asking our bedside nurses and respiratory therapists to put themselves in harm's way for a lot of time during the day. And it was very easy for them to start feeling disrespected by the medical team who was sitting at a distance and sort of making these directions. So the instructions and as well as um, a, re a nurse would be in a room for an hour, get out of the room and, and a, a resident would come up to that nurse and say, oh, you know, that blood sample we just drew hemolyzed. We go in and draw another chem 10 or, or, or um, by the way, we decided to turn the vent rate down. We go in and turn the vent rate down. And it's a big procedure to go into these rooms and getting dressed and undressed to go in. And that became a, a little source of, of friction. So we've really, really stressed, uh, really working hard to make sure that there's integrity between the medical and nursing teams. And um, in some units, they can do it better. We can't, our, our computers at the bedside uh, don't have cameras, don't have microphones. So you can't really communicate effectively that way. I think that was one key lesson. Be very, very appreciative and sensitive to what we're asking people to do. So you got to really support the staff. I think it's been a lot of fun um, and don't want to say, say that it's a bit weird to say, but to work with our adult colleagues and to work closely with our adult colleagues and, um, and, and actually see uh, as a pediatric intensivist to see how adult intensive care is practiced as in dealing with adults, there's some things to learn that, that we don't see as much. We don't truly see as much ARDS in children as adults intensivists see. And that's been interesting uh, for us to see. Um, uh, CRRT, which I thought would be easy or straightforward in adult patients due to the size of blood vessels and things like that, has been a nightmare because of the, um, the hypercoagulability and the microangiopathy that, that COVID is giving. I think that was a surprise. Um, I've learned it's extremely important to keep the team together. And we're in our own division, we have Skype calls for the whole division two to three times per week. They're actually extremely well attended and, 
<laughs> I can get many more people on a Skype call than I can ever get to a faculty meeting. So it's, it may be the way of the future. <laughs> and, and because people are not coming in when they're not, uh, they're not on duty uh, because of the people that are homesick, it's easy to get a little bit disconnected. And people do want to talk about what's going on in their lives and what's going on. And I think that's been very, very helpful. Um, you got to learn all about the LTV, <laughs> which has been something. Um, I think that the cytokine storm picture that these patients are developing is fascinating. Um, and we're still just not, we do not have it figured out at all yet. Um, I think that another key thing to learn is you have to be adaptable. It is plans get made um, on, on a Monday morning and by Monday afternoon, they're 180 degrees the opposite. And if you're too rigid about willing, being willing to change these things, it can be a real problem. Um, we've had some successes. Uh, we've managed to get some patients extubated and moved out of the unit and even discharged home. Um, but we've also had some, some, some badness happen and we've had some patients die, um, despite everything. And, um, and that has been tough for us. Um, I think that the, our adult colleagues set up treatment protocols a little bit earlier than we did. And once we start, our pediatric subspecialists got involved, it took a little while to catch up, but, but they are for sure. Um, and just trying to figure out how to approach um, these patients systematically has been tough. So I, I think those are, you know, some of the some of the lessons. Uh, um, um, and of course, uh, ultrasound can be very helpful in putting these lines into these patients. So I think those 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 are my big lessons. I think I, I really have to commend you and your colleagues and all of the healthcare workers in New York and around the country who are caring for this very sick, very um, frightening, perhaps, uh, population under circumstances that are not our usual. And you have the gratitude of everybody in the country for being willing to put yourselves at risk to take care of these very sick patients. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. It's, 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 it's been very special to be in the middle of this. Um, you know, I think it's, you know, I think, you know, it's funny. We sometimes really want in one sense to be in, in the midst of the big, the big thing. And on the other hand, we say, I don't really want to be here and I, I'm, you know, regretting what I wish for. Um, and, um, yeah, be careful. About that. I know be careful. And, and, you know, it's even I was talking to one of my friends in, in Italy and, and even in Italy, things were so and hopefully this will be the way in the States, too. Then in Italy, some places were absolutely horrendous, like like Milan and in the north. But other parts, yeah. fortunately, weren't as bad. And um, and I think something else is that we're going to have to figure out what this disease does to children. Um, it's not as benign as we've talked about. And has been talked about. There is stuff that goes on, but even most of the children we see have our kids with other issues. Um, they're, they're not kids that are, are healthy kids off the street, but it's been, it's been a huge challenge. I think everyone's getting a little bit tired, but I think that people are still motivated, strong, and they're, they're going, they keep on going.
Well, thank you very much for talking with us today and telling us your story and for all the work you do. Thank you, Mike. You're very welcome, Margaret. We have been talking today with Dr. H. Michael Ushay from Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx, New York, about how they converted their children's hospital to an adult COVID-19 hospital. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. Margaret Parker, MD, MCCM, is Professor Emeritus of Pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York. She is a former president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine. She is currently serving as Associate Editor of Critical Care Medicine and Senior Associate Editor of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Contact a customer service representative at 847-827-6888 or visit sccm.org membership for more information. The iCritical Care podcast is the copyrighted material of the Society of Critical Care Medicine and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion or endorsement on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, its officers, volunteers, or members, or that of the podcast commercial supporter.